We finished chapter 22 last week, and that, and okay, so we've gone through the triumphal entry, so it's the last week that he is on this earth, at the end of his earthly ministry, they've been up in Capernaum, up in the north, up around the Sea of Galilee, you've got the Sea of Galilee up at the north end of the Jordan River, and at the south end of the Jordan River, down at the bottom, you've got the Dead Sea. Which is the salt flats, which is a thousand feet below sea level. It's weird for it to be so low. <clears throat> and then you've got uh, so just just west of the top of the Dead Sea, west of the Jordan River, is Jerusalem. So they've gone from Jericho north of the. Uh, they've come from Transjordan over in Perea, where Herod was the uh, Herod Antipas was the governor over there. He's the one that put uh, he's the one that put John the Baptist to death on that east side of the river. They were over in there for a little bit, and then they crossed over the Jordan, came from Jericho, and and went up into the mountains into Jerusalem. And, no, I'll wait for that. So they've come to Jerusalem. They've gone back and forth from Bethany to, to Jerusalem. Bethany is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And so it's like 13, is it that far away? No, it's only six miles away. Six miles away, back and forth. It's just like traveling from uh, Davenport, Davenport over to here, not very far, but they'd walk into Jerusalem, and they're walking up the mountain every single time they come, and they'd come into the, they're spending some time in the actual temple, uh, the, the temple mount where the, the big temple is. They'd, nobody actually goes into the temple proper. Only priests go in there. But in that court, there was teaching that went on, and Jesus is answering the Pharisees' questions and all that stuff. And the last verse of last week was, and they didn't ask him any more questions after that. That was the end of chapter 22. So that brings us to chapter 23, verse 1, says, and Jesus spoke to the multitudes. So there's been times when he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the teachers of the law, but then he leaves the temple area and is speaking to the multitudes. And he says to them, uh, and is Multitudes and his disciples saying, the scribes and Pharisees, and now this is after all these arguments that he's, not arguments, that I mean, it's not like Pam and I arguing. It's, we don't argue anymore. We used to argue. But um, now she knows I'm right all the time. But he's been having these debates with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, uh, and he, he wins every time. They lose. I mean, we've talked about all the, the issues about heaven and all those things. The funny thing is, the ones that don't even believe in heaven ask him questions about heaven. I mean, so it's obvious that they're not interested in truth. They're only interested in tripping him up. Why? Because they want to find an excuse to put him to death, right? Okay, so that brings us, and he says, verse 2, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They said, they're in places of authority, just like Moses was in authority. They spoke for God. He said, they're in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, observe that and do. So he says, 
They're right in the words that they're saying, that what they're teaching is right. Do whatever they say, whatever they tell you to observe, observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Um, my dad's brother and he both were at Texas A&M and uh, uh, working on their master's degree. And my uncle worked on his doctorate there. And um, and my, so my cousins I all lived there and our dads were the boss of us all the time. And it didn't matter who who's dad and who belonged to who. They both could beat the fire out of us. And that's how it worked. Um, an Aggie ring is this big old hunk of gold and we got thumped on the head. Um, but I, I meant to bring that and wear it because my dad's Aggie ring. I mean, it weighs about a pound and a half. But my uncle said, do as I say, don't do as I do. And it didn't, it didn't matter whether it was smoking, drinking, cussing, whatever it was. And he's still pretty much that day, that way at 91 or two, 92 years old, I think he is. Um, he said, don't do as I say, do as I, no, do as I say, not as I do, which is Jesus said, they don't, don't do what, do what they say, don't do what they do. Essentially the same thing because they say and do not do, which was the same idea for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers they're not going to give they're not give you give you any help and that in fact the burden that they put on you is bigger than the burden should be but they themselves will not move with one of their, their fingers but all their works they do to be seen by men they remember when he talked about the, how they uh, when they were fasting and whatever he said they'd put on a long face. Oh, I'm just so I'm just fast. They let everybody know. He said because they do it to be seen. So he said uh, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their gar garments. Two things there. You know what a phylactery is. It's the box that has these scriptures written on it. And they, there was one that went on your forehead, and then there was one that went on your arm. And they would enlarge these things and make them big. Why? Because so everybody would know that they're being holy, um, you know. Uh, and then the, they'd enlarge uh, and the borders of their garments. Um, how many of you have watched The Chosen? Because in one of the one of the latest episodes, that this guy has come to, he's come from where there's kind of almost riots going on uh, in uh, in response to Jesus' teaching, and he's so he's coming and he's telling the chief priest that there's just bad stuff going on. So he's ridden this horse in there, and he's all covered in dirt and everything. And the guy says, "What are you wearing?" And he. What are you talking about? He's, he said, what have you got on? And he said, well, this is what everybody in Capernaum wears. Um, and he says, you've mixed cloth and skins because it had some leather on it and um, 
and cloth together, well, that's violating one of the laws that you couldn't mix. Yeah, so you could, we couldn't mix up different stuff. You couldn't move to mix different fabrics. And then he says, and where, where are your prayer tassels? Where are your, what do they call them? Prayer tassels. The prayer, well. Tassels. They were these prayer tassels, and they showed that they were, how holy they were. And that what? Okay. Um, they actually, and they, this guy, before he'll even, he can even make this very important report, he makes him tie these tassels onto his garment because he said, well, I couldn't wear those on the road. I'd, I'd get in trouble that just inviting somebody to attack me or whatever. And he said, well, you can't come in here in the temple without the tassels on. I mean, so just this legalism. That was the borders of their garment that we're talking about. He's saying the really holy guys would have these long tassels so no matter how long their t-shirt was, it'd hang out and everybody would be able to see it. So he said they they make all this stuff, the five big, big boxes uh, with the, and this, they had scriptures written on uh, uh, three columns of scriptures from Exodus, from Deuteronomy, and some of the rules. And, and it was, a literal version of God said, write them on your hearts, write them on your, put them on. Yes. But I, they took it so far because they almost, it was almost like they tacked a whole Bible on their forehead, you know, in order to show how holy. And I mean, think about how big the Bibles that some people would carry so they'd know how so you'd know how holy they were. It's that kind of a thing. It says, they loved the best places at the feast, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Have you Remember how many times Jesus said, why are you calling me teacher? Because Jesus didn't want to be exalted, and, and he, Jesus didn't need the attention. So he said... Uh, Rabbi, which means teacher. He said, but you do not be called rabbi for one, only one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brethren. I, I de- I've dealt with this in my ministry for these however many years it's been. Uh, wanting to be, people wanting to call you reverend. Do you know what reverend means? It means that you're revered, that you're, that you're viewed as reverent. Um, somebody to be respected and, and all that stuff. And it's one thing to for people to volunteer that or recognize that you are somebody to be respected, but that it should come because they recognize it from your behavior, not because you've got a title. And so I've always shirked being called reverend through the years. Or I, I like being called pastor because it's, you know, like, I mean, it's it's more of a relational thing than a than a title that demands something. So don't. He said, "You're just all brethren," and I'm reminded of that. That I'm not even the shepherd. I am the under shepherd. I'm I'm more like just another sheep, maybe a sheep with a bell on or something like that, but still a sheep. And that's what Jesus says: "You're just all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father." For one is your father, he was in heaven. Why? I think about all of the 
Catholic priests that get called father this or father that. Um, and the only one is your father, he who is in heaven, which Jesus encourages us to pray to. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. He's flipping the script on, on what you should go for. If you want to really be recognized, be recognized as a servant. Um, uh, the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites. We know, all know what that means. That's what, somebody who says one thing and does another. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This reminds me of the prodigal son, that you had the one son that gets invited in, and they're having a party, and the one who doesn't want... He's mad that the, that the, the young son is that they're having a party for him, but he, and he does not go in. And Jesus said, That's, you, don't want to go, you don't want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, and you don't want anybody else to go in either. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. They, they were, these guys were lawyers, and they... And they uh, they would swindle women, widows out of their homes. They would talk them into, well, it would be like a, a TV preacher saying to send, send stuff in and, and, uh, and what you could get for it. And they would just con these women into giving up their houses. It, and that might be in support of a ministry or some pet project they have or whatever. But Jesus was pointing out that it was horribly wrong. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's, that's the third time he said it. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. That means that they, if they got a Gentile and had him conferred over to Judaism, they, they would go to the ends of the earth to, for that to happen. But they wouldn't help somebody that was Jew already and encourage them spiritually or anything else. You'll go to the ends of the earth to win one proselyte, and when he's won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves because they, they would make them be almost militant in their rule, uh, their teaching of rules and, and looking at all that stuff. He said, you they'll just get caught up in all your mess. Woe to you blind guides. So that's the fourth time, only doesn't, Call them hypocrites this time. He calls them blind guides who say, whoever, now listen to this, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. And this is just loopholes. This is saying, nah, you can make a promise. If, if, all you, if you promise on the temple, even though it may sound like you're making a real promise, it's like crossing your fingers. You know, you make a promise, but you cross your fingers, so it's not any good. Um, so, but the, if I promise on the gold on the temple, and the temple had 
decorations of gold. It had sheets of gold that were on the columns and and some some of the bars that went. I mean, it was a lot of gold. The Romans went to a lot of trouble when they sacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D. They went to a lot of trouble to get that gold off of there. And it was attached in some way that it was difficult to take off, so they just burned the whole temple down. And as the gold melted, then they busted it all up to, to get that gold. So it... But that's what the temple looked like. Fools and blind, for what? which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? He's saying the temple's more important than the gold. What's the point? He, and whoever swears by the altar, it's, it doesn't mean anything, but whoever swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's obliged to perform it. Same thing, fools, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Because the gift, I mean, the gift is just grain or a, a bird or a, or a calf or something like that, it doesn't mean anything. The gift doesn't mean anything. It's the, al- the altar that it sits on that it makes, it makes it sanctified, makes it anything in the first place. Therefore, he who swears by, uh, therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells there. And he who swears by heaven swears by the very throne of God and by him who sits on it. Uh, this crazy, um, crazy loophole stuff that they created. And they did it about many, many things. We already talked a few chapters ago about um, what they would do, claiming that an off, what, what, money was going to support their parents in their old age, that they made that a gift to God, but it was like a living trust. Yes, and that they got to keep. They got to use all that and invest it and whatever, put in the bank until they were dead, and then it would go to the church. Uh, So 7 and 9 says, excuse me, 13, make the word of God of none effect, yeah. The traditions. Right. That's what they were. Tradition. Right. Tradition. What? Yeah. You just he, Jeff just sang a little fiddler on the roof right there. Tradition. Um, they their whole lives revolved on traditions that, but they became almost as weighty as scripture itself. So, um, tradition, uh, okay, 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Okay, how many of you have ever used mint or anise or cumin? You cooked with those. How how long does a bottle of cumin last? Oh, you use a lot of it, huh? Uh, Last Thanksgiving, Christmas, that's about it. Okay. (laughs) Mint and anise and cumin are potent. All of those are potent spices and stuff. So if you tithe, I mean, typically a bottle of cinnamon or anise or something like that is in a little jar like that 
So they were tithing a tenth of that jar, a teaspoonful or whatever. He's saying, so you're you're really careful to tithe your teaspoons of mint and anise and cumin, but you've neglected this stuff like taking care of your parents. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Um, He said, and you've neglected all that. Now, I don't know about you, but I've used that many times in teaching and discussion that we have with people about... Though, and, and it always comes up in discussions about how many rules we have, about whether or not you can cut your hair and whether or not woman, women can wear pants. Every single one of y'all are so backslidden. Every one of you has pants on right now. Cannot believe it. We, th- that's when those discussions come up. Yeah, tithing, you're doing good wearing those dresses and not, not wearing any makeup or whatever you're tithing your mint and anise and cumin. That's how that comes up. The funny thing is, right here, and we seldom talk about this part of it. Jesus says, these you ought to have done. It's not wrong to tithe mint and anise and cumin. That's not wrong. What's wrong is if you do that and and ignore these other things. You shouldn't... These you should have done, but without leaving the others undone. It's the things you chose to focus on and the things you chose to ignore. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And this is something that they literally did. They, they had... Uh, they had claws that they carried around that they'd put over a filter and they'd pour their water or wine or whatever they were doing but in case a gnat got in there and then they keep that covered over their cup and then they take it off and drink and put it in there because God forbid you should swallow a gnat. And, but Jesus says it's so much humor. If you ever ridden a motorcycle, you end up swallowing a lot of things that end up... <laughs> But he says, you, at some, I mean, it's just funny, the humor. You've, you've strained out and kept from swallowing a gnat, which is meaningless, but you swallow a camel. Remember how he talked about the cup and that you're cleaning the outside of the cup, but not cleaning the inside of the cup? Can you imagine taking a coffee cup that's had coffee in it for a week and, you know, it's slimy in there. You dump that out, but you make sure the outside is clean, but you don't worry about the inside. And Jesus, this is the same thing that he's talking about. You're swallowing a camel at the same time you're straining a gnat out. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's the fifth time he's called them a hypocrite. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Extortion is when you con somebody out of their money or, um, I mean, he's basically calling them grifters and con men. That's what that means. Uh, and self-indulgence, self-centered, um, uh, rewarding yourself in every, just selfish, selfish, selfish. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, that's the sixth time, for you are like washed tombs, 
which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Do you know why they white, they actually did whitewash tombs? And if you go to um, if you go to New Orleans, there's a lot of uh, they have stuff above ground because the water the their ground is so wet that caskets will actually float up. So rather than burying people, they actually put tombs on top of the ground and they whitewashed them. Um, but the reason, but the reason they were whitewashed in Jesus' day is because you didn't want to accidentally touch one or get close to it or stumble over it. Um, you didn't want to make. There was no mistaking what it was. Um, and the, if you accidentally walked over a grave, but it's not marked or anything like that, somebody's buried under there. But if you walked over that, you were ceremonial, uh, ceremonially unclean. And so the reason they whitewashed them was to keep somebody from accidentally cer- becoming ceremonial unclean. He said, you're, you're, because a dead body was the worst thing that you could touch and make you unclean for nine days or whatever. Um, that's why uh, the Good Samaritan, that's why they didn't want to get close to that guy. He might accidentally be dead, and then they'd be unclean. So Jesus, you worry so much about that thing, you're, you are um, you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones. There's another place where he says, he, woe, woe to you. White, white, your whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. That's the worst. That's a terrible, terrible insult. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Think what Jesus is saying right here. You think that if you had lived in that day that you're so holy, you would have never killed the prophets. You'd never put Zechariah to death, whoever was sawn in half that it talks about in Hebrews chapter 11. You say you would never have done that. But what are they doing right now about Jesus? Jesus is a prophet, and everybody's recognized that, and they're trying to kill him. But they apparently, that was something that was commonly known, is that they actually said, you know, if, if I'd been around, I would have never done that. But they're planning it already. Therefore, your witnesses against yourselves, you've, you've, you know when you plead the fifth? The Fifth Amendment says you're as protection against testifying against yourself and incriminating yourself. So when you plead the fifth, you just say, I refuse to answer on the bound that it might incriminate me. And Jesus said, you're incriminating yourselves because you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets Wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify. Now Jesus is making a prophecy right here about what's going to happen in the church in the future. 
I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you'll kill and crucify, and some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on, uh, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, who Cain killed, uh, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So inside the temple, near the altar, he was stoned there. Now, there is a Zechariah that was killed in that fashion, but it was not... Uh, it was not at the end of the Old Testament like this Zechariah was. That was Zechariah, son of Jehoiada. And they've tried to reconcile who this is. But the fact is, Jesus knew what he was talking about. And either we don't know who that was from Old Testament writings, but, but whatever it is, what Jesus is saying here is the truth. And so, and every I think everybody knew who he was talking about at the time. We don't have it in history now, but the fact is there was an Abel and there is a Zechariah that Jesus is talking about that was killed by being stoned between the altar and the... Um, between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What things? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And I imagine Jesus saying this, that, I mean, just grief-stricken. But Jesus knows what's coming. And I, I'm, I think that Jesus wishes that more positive things could have happened during his ministry. And so he's just in grief. Jerusalem, my Jerusalem. How I wish I could have gathered you as a kin gathers her chicks under wings. But you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, and the fact is, this is about the end of it where they're not going to see Jesus anymore until one day they see him when we all see him and every knee should bow and every tongue confess. And... Uh, well, there's a quote from Ezekiel that says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Uh, uh, Ezekiel is, has been seeing this vision about the wheels and wheels and all that stuff. And he said, and it, what he saw was the glory of the Lord going out of the midst of the city of Jerusalem and, and that and the Spirit comes out of the cities and goes and stands on a mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Um, let me just get started for a second on, oh shoot, I'm stuck there. The beginning, 
The beginning of chapter 24, listen what it says. Jesus went out and departed from the temple. So it's that prophecy. The Spirit goes out of Jerusalem and the temple. And his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. They're saying, as they're leaving, they're saying, man, in the temple, in the temple, gorgeous. Imagine, imagine columns of um, blocks of marble that were 12 by 12. So that's about the back of the, that, those pew, those chairs back there to the end of the chairs on this road here. That's 12 by 12. And then the stones are 40 feet tall. They're twice as tall as the ceiling right now. That's what one of the stones that are all stuck together to make the temple looks like. It's one single stone. And they were set in, they were set up like this. So they're, they're 12 by 12 by 40 feet tall. That's how big one stone is, and it's a stone of marble. Um, and so when they've been walking up to Jerusalem every morning for the past several days, they walk from the east side and up the mountain, and from that you can see the white side, you can see the back side of the temple. The, the temple look, the front side of the temple was on the west, and it's what had gold all in front of it. When you saw it from that side... You can't. You were coming down, but you could see this from miles away, miles and miles away, and it was white marble, so it shone in the sun. I mean, it was pretty obvious. And so they say, "Isn't the temple a beautiful place?" And I think they're asking him, "What are you talking about when you say the temple will be destroyed? How could that? Po- how could that possibly even happen? This this place would be impossible to tear down, almost right." Don't you see all these? And Jesus says, don't you see all these things? Can't you see the big picture? I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And what happened was when the Romans came in 70 AD and they sacked the place, the last thing they did was they piled up fuel all around the edge of the uh, temple and burn everything so that the the marble falls apart and they pulverize it all to get all the gold out of it and they they got all the gold out and then it says not not one stone will be here not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down when they were finished they pushed it off the edge of the temple mount and it went down in the brook kidron which is like a thousand nine hundred feet below. It fell down that cliff, and it, uh, the road that they used to go up, it fell down all over, all over that road and everything. So literally, n- no stone that had been on the Temple Mount was left there anymore. Not even pieces of it. It was just all bulldozed, not by a bulldozer, but like that. It's just pushed off the edge of, of the Temple Mount and fell down in the Brook Kidron. Uh, the the big valley, the Kidron Valley. Jesus said that's what's going to happen, and that's what happened. I had a picture of that's where the Temple Mount was, and so where the Dome of the Rock is right there, you, m- most of y'all have seen that before, that's where the Temple was, and it was just as just as visible as the Dome of the Rock is. I mean, it was an amazing... 
In the days, in Jesus' day, it was an absolutely magnificent structure, like the Empire State Building or the Sears Building in Chicago or something like that, or the World Trade Center. I mean, it was just absolutely a magnificent place. When it says the Spirit came up out of the... um, out of Jerusalem in Ezekiel, and it went over and stood by a mountain. The mountain is right over here, the Mount of Olives, which is what Jesus did. When he leaves here, he ends up going over to the Mount of Olives. And it's that picture of what happened in Ezekiel. Now, he comes back there to be tried and crucified and all. But from a spiritual standpoint, that was it right there. And we'll look at that in chapter 24 next time. Okay. And the first thing that I did was play for a service of a young woman that had died in the church. The pastor preached the service. Then we went to bury her. And we stayed there until they mounted up the, because they had to do it on top of the ground. Okay. And then we stayed there until they did the cement over her. Oh, wow. And so that took a while. Right. But that was amazing because... Right. It's just like Louisiana. It's yeah. They have to build columns up. Right. The whole things. And so, is it for the same reason that the yeah. ground is just so wet it's, that? It's, yeah. It's right. Water, yeah. Right. Hmm. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Though, but it's weird to go over to Louisiana and just see all those tombs on top of the ground. It's a strange thing. I went there after Katrina, and um, the water had been everywhere. Father, thank you for your word and and um, the revelation that we get from it. And I pray that you, we that, that we could just become more aware of your word and that you'd help us to retain it and and use it to develop our picture of who you are and how much you care for us. Uh, we thank you for the way that you're answering our prayers and and bringing healing to people that we care about, our church family. Bless us as we go from this place to be Jesus everywhere we go. It's in his name we pray. Amen.